This is Dialogue with Drake Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Today we will be talking about truth and reconciliation. We discuss the mandate and role of Ulnue on PEI, the 94 calls to action in the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission final report the meaning of the September 30th National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, Residential Schools, Bill C-15, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, Treaty Rights, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, and Two-Spirited People, Mi'kmaq History Month, and more. It is important to note that as hosts, we are entering this space as settlers. I'm currently located on the unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, which is home to the peoples of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation. This territory is also known as Ottawa. And I'm located on the unceded and unsurrendered territory of Mi'kmaq, specifically the region of Epequetk, home to the Mi'kmaq people. This territory is also known as Prince Edward Island. Today we are speaking with two powerhouses, Janine Woolridge and Julie Policier-Lush. Janine is the executive director of Ulnue, the Ebigwit Mi'kmaq Rights Initiative. She was named as the top 25 most powerful women in business by Atlantic Business Magazine in 2021 and is the author of The Living Full Circle, a published weekly undated planner based on living life with intention and balance, which was released October 15th, 2021. Julie Policia Lush is Ulnue's first knowledge keeper, best-selling author of My Mi'kmaq Mother, recipient of the Queen's Jubilee Medal in 2013, Meritorious Service Medal recipient in 2017, and recipient of the Senator's 150 Medal in April 2019, as well as Poet Laureate. Janine and Julie, thank you so much to both of you uh, for joining us today. Um, our, ver- our first question for you is an important one, and we'll go to you first, Janine, for the answer. How are you? Good. How are you? Splendid. It's a beautiful Saturday morning. <laughs> how are you doing, it Julie? Is. Doing good. Thank you so much for having us. Now, I know we, we mentioned this at the start, but just wanted to say how excited we are to have both you, Janine and Julie, here with us. But we'll jump right into things with that excitement. So we'll first look at Own the Way. And as we know, it's one of several organizations on PEI that serve Indigenous folks. So Janine, we'll go to you first. Can you tell us a little bit about the history and the mandate of this organization? So Own the Way was launched um, in... September of 2019, and it's an initiative focused on protecting and implementing the constitutionally entrenched rights of the Mi'kmaq on PEI or the Ebigwidnawa Mi'kmaq. And the signing of the framework agreement really signaled a significant step forward for the Mi'kmaq leadership in the negotiation and nation rebuilding efforts on PEI. And this agreement was signed by all three orders of government. So Canada, Prince Edward Island, and the Mi'kmaq. Um, And Ulnaway focuses on negotiations, consultations, and governance development. So it's really um, strengthening the tools um, to protect and resolve uh, uh, rights issues. And 
it's really making sure that we're working towards um, Mi'kmaq access to lands and resources, um, fiscal fairness, the protection and implementation of Mi'kmaq rights that includes Aboriginal rights, treaty rights, and the inherent right to self-government. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that great overview of the organization and its history. Um, although it's you know relatively new, I, I feel like it's packed a punch in a very short period of time, which is, is awesome to see. And, you know, we've seen over the last couple of uh, months and years as well, there's significant education, especially online by harnessing social media to provide folks with definitions and explanations of concepts, uh, as well as Mi'kmaq words. So what has the reception been like for this initiative, Janine? The reception has been very welcome. Um, Islanders generally want to know more. They're very interested. And even though they may not have had much exposure to Mi'kmaq history, Mi'kmaq rights, um, they want to know more. So our um, employees have been flooded with requests for information from Olnaway, and it's, it's really been a great reception. Yeah, and I know, at least for myself, um, in seeing this on social media, it's always so eye-catching and educational. And as you said, I think a lot of or most Islanders have been failed by the education system and not having any previous knowledge of the Mi'kmaq people. And so to be able to have it in an accessible way is is exciting and uh Hope to see more of it too. And Julie, we'll go over to you, you know, as the knowledge keeper of Ulna Way, but also as a poet laureate, you've done a lot of work at sharing knowledge about Mi'kmaq people, culture, and history. This is, of course, an essential piece to ensuring the longevity of practices and knowledge. So how do you find the demand for this knowledge and these stories have shifted over the last number of years? I think when I first started doing presentations. It was always academia and upper levels academia, mostly universities, colleges. And then all of a sudden there was a shift, probably about 10 years ago, where the public schools started to become more interested and it would be targeted times. I mean, Aboriginal Awareness Week, everybody wanted somebody to come in. Uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, they wanted somebody to come in. And now I find the shift is that it is recognized that there's more opportunities than those two times of years for somebody like me to come in and sit and talk with them and be there to answer questions. And the age group has actually enlarged as well. I went to uh, Head Start the other day and just had little kids dancing and singing. And when I was leaving, they were still humming the songs. and. And that's the getting into the grassroots and just being there at every level of their education so that they have some knowledge of our part in the history of Canada. That's awesome. And uh, I, I didn't know you were at Head Start. So I worked in the same building. Um, I don't know if you were there that day, but I could hear all the little children just drumming down the hallway up and down. Um, and I was having a, co a conversation with some co-workers. I'm like, what's the drum? So we go outside and it was just the cutest thing I have ever seen to see all these little children going back and forth and each one of them having a turn on the drums. It was so incredibly beautiful to see. And yeah, and you know, I, I think 
as well. You're right. I think every time I go to an event now, it's just where's Julie? Let's see if we can spot Julie. And Julie is usually in the crowd. <laughs> yes, I'm usually there. <laughs> so it's it's definitely great to see, you know, how much more widespread uh, this knowledge sharing is going. Our next topic is truth and reconciliation. This year, September 30th, was recognized as the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation and declared a federal and provincial statutory holiday on PEI. This day has also been recognized as Orange Shirt Day for a number of years, with the significance being that Phyllis Webstad, a residential school survivor, had her orange shirt, a gift from her grandmother, taken away from her on her first day at a residential school in BC. So Janine, can you tell us a little bit about the significance of this day being commemorated? So this day being commemorated has huge significance and it's really a day of national reflection and commemoration for the residential school survivors. And it was brought about by the hard work of the residential school survivors in one of the biggest class action lawsuits against the Canadian government. Um, and it also was one of the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission called Action Number 80. So as you had mentioned, Orange Shirt Day, it, it started in 2013 on uh, September 30th, and it was brought about by Phyllis Webstad, who was given an orange shirt from her grandmother um, when she left for residential schools. And when she arrived at the school, her clothes were taken from her and they were never returned. And that orange shirt always reminded Phyllis of the time that she spent at residential schools where the children didn't feel cared for or loved. Um, so she wanted that orange shirt to represent that every child matters. And it's so heartwarming to see the growing awareness every year. I see my children attend schools and all of their friends have orange shirts. And a number of years ago, it was only our children who were wearing the orange shirts. And now I see teachers and staff and the children all wearing the orange shirts. And it's so heartwarming to see that response and to see the support and times are changing. So with um, National Day uh, for Truth and Reconciliation falling on September 30th, it's, it's, it's special as well. Um, so we wanna make sure that the survivors are remembered and their time in residential schools are never forgotten. And as you know, the number of uh, children Indigenous bodies that have been found in unmarked graves is now over 7,000. So we need to ensure that this day is commemorated and remembered and to make sure that this never happens again. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you're, you're absolutely right, of course. I think this year we were able to see um, a number of, I won't say events, but, you know, just ceremonies taking place to really acknowledge the loss that Indigenous communities have faced, um, you know, as a result of residential schools. Um, starting in May of this year, of course, when the bodies of 215 children were found at the Kamloops Residential School. And since then, as you said, uh, we've found thousands of bodies in unmarked graves across Canada with children who didn't make it home from these schools. 
um, the initial Truth and Reconciliation Report estimated that there were over 6,000 children who didn't survive um, and, you know, there's still bodies being found. Uh, so, Julie, how can listeners support Indigenous communities in coping with this loss? I always say, first and foremost, be an ally, and that means a whole number of things. Uh, it means, like Janine said, wearing orange. Um, I was interviewed on the day of truth and reconciliation, and the reporter said, well, what do we do with our orange t-shirts after today? Like, what do people usually do? I said, well, you could wear them next week. You could, you could wear them in a month. You know, whenever you feel the need or want to support this, then put your orange t-shirt on, wear it. And I notice, so I'm sure others notice, when you see somebody walking around wearing an orange t-shirt, you just look at them and give them the nod because you know what they're doing and why they're doing it. Listen to the stories. That's another big one. I mean, we have so many stories that we're missing from our Canadian collective, and they're coming out now. But I think the first step is listening to the stories. Second step is allowing us to tell our stories. I think that is so important. It's either been that our story has been missing, or it's not us telling the story. So when I think, what are the best things to do? Go to websites like ilnaway.ca and look at the material that we've provided because these are the stories that we want you to start learning from. These are the things that will start that journey of educating yourself of the real history, the real true history of the Indigenous people. And at Illinois, you'll be able to learn more about all these things that obviously we think is very important for people to know. And no, we're not gonna be able to go and visit every organization or every school here in the Atlantic region, but go to the places that are already offering material for you to start that education of yourself and listen to the stories. That's the most important thing, listen to the stories. Thank you so much for breaking down, you know, in such simple actions that we can take in our everyday life to be able to support communities more. Um, but Janine, uh, what action do you think should be taken uh, maybe at the government level, at the community level, to ensure that history doesn't repeat itself, uh, you know, such as in the case of residential schools? One of the most important steps is acknowledging our true shared history. For so long, it has been uh, pushed to the side, not shared. Um, and so we need to make sure that everyone who lives in Canada is fully aware of that true shared history. Um, and also education, continued education, um, making sure that our curriculum in the school systems has the true history um, included in it, making sure that people have access to courses on reconciliation sessions on our history and reconciliation, how they can move forward and um, make sure that this just never happens again. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, just on this kind of focus area of truth and reconciliation, 
Um, in, in the 2015 report, there were 94 calls to action. I know we, we've mentioned some of them already. As of June of this year, 14 of the calls to action have been completed, 23 are in progress with projects underway, and 37 are in project with progress with projects proposed, however 20 have yet to be started. Janine, how do you feel the progress of these have been so far? So six years later, it's slow. There, there was immediate need when this commission put forward the 94 calls to action. It, it was, the need was, was so immediate then. And six years later, when you have 20 of those calls to action yet to be started, it's unacceptable. We need to do better. We need to make sure that people know about the 94 calls to actions. I'm still finding six years later, Canadians aren't aware of the 94 calls to actions. And it's just, it's so important that people are held accountable to make sure that these calls to action are moving forward. Um, governments, institutions in Canada, we all need to be accountable and to be a part of having those calls to action implemented immediately. Definitely, it, it does seem like things are moving slow, but you know, there's always hope for the future. Um, looking back at 2021, um, in June of this year, Bill C-15, which is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, uh, received royal assent federally. This act is to provide a roadmap for the government and Indigenous peoples to work together to fully implement the declaration. And, you know, this has several articles and implications ranging from justice uh, to climate change. So Janine, what does this legislation mean for Canada? So this really serves as having UNDRIP being affirmed as a universal international human rights instrument um, applicable in Canadian law. So the government of Canada will be required to take all necessary measures to ensure that Canadian laws are consistent with the articles of UNDRIP. So um, really the success of the bill um, will depend on the implementation of a time frame that demonstrates measurable success as we've seen with other um, initiatives um, across Canada, the time frame just doesn't add up. So we, make, we need to make sure that that's in place. Um, and it's critical to note that uh, this must complement and not distract from existing Aboriginal and treaty rights that are entrenched in Section 35 of the Constitutional, Constitution Act of Canada. Um, constitutionally protected rights have been regularly ignored in, in this country, um, and that's really undeniable. So concrete steps towards reconciliation and up, upholding the honour of the Crown will require the good faith implementation of the Section 95 rights. It's so interesting. I think the breakdown, I think, in, you know, looking at the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and while, you know, we have that kind of international side of things, we've still failed to implement and uphold, you know, treaty rights that were, you know, 
existing, you know, in time and memoriam. So it, I think it's kind of an interesting, I guess, juxtaposition that while there are kind of new laws coming in place, we've failed to support other ones. Um, and on the topic of treaty rights, we've seen loads of examples in the last number of years. The context of the 2020 lobster fishing dispute in Nova Scotia. So for our listeners, Janine, can you tell us what are treaty rights? So it's important to note that treaties can only be signed between nations and the signatories of the peace and friendship treaties were the Mi'kmaq nation and the British nation and these treaties also allowed for the creation of Canada as a nation. So the signing of these treaties, it guaranteed the right for both parties to live and use the land in peace and friendship. So it was an agreement by both parties, both the Mi'kmaq and the British Crown, meaning Canada signed the peace and friendship treaties and that we're all supposed to be working together to uphold the treaties. And that's what we mean when we say that we are all treaty people. Everyone has a role to play in upholding the treaty relationship. And there's really an opportunity to create a better understanding and relationship here. Um, The treaties are acknowledged in the Canadian constitution, the highest law of the land, as well as the Supreme Court of Canada. So they have also survived government attempts to get rid of them through the Supreme Court of Canada, but the treaties, they still exist today and they never expire. Yeah, I think that's a really big takeaway. There, There is no Canada without treaty rights. Um, and I think that's, yeah, very simply and effectively put. Um, But moving forward, what are some specific actions to ensure that these rights are protected? Because, you know, at least in the last number of years, it seems as though there's still kind of deliberation on, oh, I don't know. Well, oh, what are the specifics here? Like that there's still some hemming and hawing on what that looks like in practice. So uh, Janine, we'll start with you. And then Julie, if you want to jump in too, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. So as I said earlier, like acknowledgement of the shared history um, and that treaties still exist. The treaties need to be respected and honored and implemented. And the Canadian government needs to stop fighting Indigenous people. Um, A sincere commitment by Canada to promote reconciliation through the implementation of UNDRIP and constitutionally protected rights Um, can affect true and positive change to uphold the honor of the crown. Um, But we need to see that actually implemented now. Yeah, and for me, when I was looking through the websites, looking through some more information, it really is that it was a nation-to-nation negotiation. I mean, we were never a conquered people. We, We never surrendered. We were never defeated. We are a nation and, you know, we have signed treaties that had it be any other nation had been worked, would have been worked through way before now. So I think we, they need to recognize us as, as a, as a group that they need to start working with in terms of negotiating these treaties, working things out for the betterment of both of our parties. Um, This is still unceded Mi'kmaq territory here. And we've entered into these treaties a long time ago with good conscience and good faith. 
And so I think it's time that we start working through these step by step, make sure that nobody is left behind, because that's always one of our key issues is that we make sure that we move forward together. And that's what Ilnawe is all about. Thank you both uh, so much for this, I think, very clear explanation. Um, and I was also thinking to one of your earlier points, Janine, as both of you were speaking now, is the importance of education and transmitting the right and true history to everyone and how powerful that is. Um, we're going to shift gears and, and talk about something else that's, that's very serious. And we're going to be talking about uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, October 4th is commemorated as the National Day of Action for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and to us LGBTQ plus people. And this is also known as Red Dress Day. Uh, so Julie, would you be able to tell us more about the Red Dress campaign and the significance of October 4th? For about eight years, I sat as the Vice President of the Aboriginal Women's Association of PEI. I sat at the National, Inter the National Women's Summit where we talked about issues in the Indigenous communities affecting women, girls, and two-spirited. I was invited to go to Newfoundland, to Yellowknife, and to Toronto to sit on these groups to identify the key issues. And one of the key issues was the missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited. Uh, statistically speaking, uh, four out of five Indigenous women are affected by violence at some point in their life. The RCMP made a report in 2014 that there's over 1,200 missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited who are all mothers, daughters, sisters, aunties. All these people are our relations. And we, for some reason, for some I'm not sure exactly why we stopped going into the news when we went missing. We stopped being the headlines in the newspaper when somebody was murdered. It's slowly being corrected, but I think the Sisters in Spirit Day and the Red Dress Day are really to symbolize that we still need to keep working on this issue. October 4th is the day when we honor the lives of the missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, transgender, diverse people, support the grieving families and create opportunities of healing. And that's really what it is. When you see a red dress hanging from the trees, I see them at UPEI when I drive by around that time. I see them different places downtown. Uh, family members will put a red dress outside their house. And when you drive by, what they're doing is they're showing you that they are in mourning. They, they are either mourning a loss of somebody in their family or they're supporting the initiative to keep making sure that this issue is not left behind. It's not put in the closet and, and left to, to just keep festering and growing. This is an issue that needs to be talked about. It needs to be worked on. And when you see a red dress, the red is because red is the only color our ancestors can see. The people who have left us that are still part of our family, our ancestors, they can see red. And when we put the dress in red, we're symbolizing the spirit of these women who we honor and we, we, we still worry for, we're still looking for them, or we're still looking for justice for them. One of those two things. So it's a, definitely a day where you should take the time to think about why you're doing it and how to be an ally with it.
Thank you. Thank you so much for this. Um, of course, the report, uh, Reclaiming Power in Place, the final report of the National Enquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls was released in 2019 uh, with you know, the results of the inquiry as well as 231 calls to justice aimed at governments. How would you describe the progress of these calls to justice over the last couple of years, Janine? So again, I would have to say that the progress is slow. It's been two years and immediate action is needed. Um, we have indigenous women still dying and in harm's way. Um, there's systemic racism that's entrenched in these institutions and people are upholding them and causing harm to indigenous women. And that can't be ignored, whether it's in the healthcare system, the justice system. Um, so there is, education and understanding that is still needed. Um, implementation is still needed. And there's an opportunity to do better here. I know that NWAC has um, stated that the process is fundamentally flawed. So when you have a group such as NWAC making statements like that, it, it needs to be looked at and we need to see how we can do better for these Indigenous women who are being murdered and dying at the hands of people in Canada. Absolutely. There's there's no reason that this should be taken slowly or, you know, taking your time. Like, you know, things needed to be done yesterday. So really discouraging, I think, to hear how slow, um, uh, you know, I think working towards justice for these women and girls and two-spirit folks. So yeah, I'll <laughs> leave that one at that. Um, we'll move on, I think, to a bit more of a positive focus now. October was Mi'kmaq History Month, and this year's themes were ceremony and consensus, peace and friendship, denial and da damage, renewal and reconciliation. Now, Julie, we'll start with you. What was the reception like and the major takeaways from this month? I would say from this month that people really are starting to slowly recognize that we are part of the Canadian story. Um, they're realizing that a lot of our stories are missing from the Canadian architecture, from our education system. And I see people are now reaching out. They're wanting to, to learn more, maybe as organizations, agencies, uh, public school systems, they're, they're starting to reach out and wanting to learn more. And I think that's a really good start because this is our story and I think it's our time to share it. And I think it's a good opportunity for us to share the important things that we want people to know. So I think this is a perfect time for us to start moving forward in a good way. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh Thank you so much for that. Now, uh, to kind of wrap things up, this is the end of our formal interview segment, but we can't have a poet laureate on our show and you know, not request a poem. So Julie, would you be willing to read this one of your poems today? Definitely. I was looking through because I always, I have like a filing cabinet of knowledge that I, I will pull from when needed. And I thought, what would work out best? And I think with all the different questions that you've asked us and some of the answers that uh, we've provided for you, I think for me, I still see a lot of hope. And so when I look through all the different poems that I have, uh, I picked the dandelion because 
I think it was last summer uh, throughout COVID and all this craziness. And I looked out across at the field next door to my house and the field was full of the dandelions after they turned into fluff. And my favorite thing when I was little was to go and find dandelions and blow the fluff off and make a wish. And you know, some parts of you never go away. And so I looked over at this big, huge field and something in my heart just triggered, you know, that little child in you. So I ran over and I started videoing all the fluff rising in the air. And it was so much fun. So I came back and I said, I have to write something about this, write something that will make me feel that way, even when there isn't a dandelion field across from me. In the cold of winter, I can read these words and still feel hope. So that's why I wrote this one. When I say wish, even to myself, that means that I still have hope. When I was a little girl, I believed in magic, wishing upon the first star in the night sky, picking up every penny that I found on the ground, blowing the fluff off of dandelions, closing my eyes tight as I blow out the candles on my cake. Wishing is my way to keep hope alive. I wish our mother earth was not in danger. I wish we didn't have to fear any sickness. I wish we could celebrate our differences and not fear them. I wish everyone had a past full of joy and not pain. I wish everyone could feel safe in their homes. I wish every child had enough. I see the human spirit still alive during even such hard times. I see people who struggle to get the help that they need. I see smiles from our elders as we try to keep them safe. I see families finally bonding with this extra gift of time. I see babies, many more babies blessing this island. I see our artists reaching out in so many wonderful ways to bring us joy. Now that I am grown, I still believe in magic. I still wish upon the first star that I see in the night sky. I still pick up every penny I find on the ground. I still blow, blow fluff off of dandelions. I still close my eyes tight as I blow out the candles on my cake. Wishing is and always will be my way of keeping hope alive. When we hold our wishes in, we give our hearts room to dream. When we start saying our wishes out loud, we plant the seeds for others to dream. And I think this one works for today because I can see that maybe somebody listening to this amazing podcast with Sueta, Emma, Janine, and myself, maybe it'll plant a seed and, and they'll start looking for the true stories. They'll start working on becoming an ally to get these calls to action pushed through. And so I think this was a good poem for today. Wow, Julie, that was just amazing. And I think it's really reflective of the work that we all do. And, you know, hope is trying to keep hope alive in tough present situations that we are faced with, but having that hope for a better tomorrow is so important in the work that we do and hoping that 
we're impacting a better tomorrow for everyone. That was that was so beautiful. And thank you both so much for, for joining us today. Um, I'm a little bit speechless right now. I don't know if Emma, you have something to say. I just, I, I'm completely floored at how mesmerizing and engaging and I think truthful in a required way, but also hopeful in a positive way. That poem is, I, I'm so excited for listeners to be able to hear it because it's so good. So thank you so much for, for sharing that knowledge and, and beautiful artistry with us. I, I'm also still speechless. Thank you. <laughs> thank you both for having us. It's been so great chatting with you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. I think this was a real treat and we've been so excited for this episode. Um, I think to kind of wrap things up, you know, um, holiday season is coming up. So we were wondering, are there any indigenous owned businesses we should watch out for that we can recommend to listeners? Do you, can you folks think of any, so just as folks are doing their holiday shopping or are there any organizations, you know, if folks want to support that, you know, they'd be able to uh, help out with? Absolutely. We have an indigenous artisan market on Saturday, November 27th. So that will be the spot to go. It's at the Confederation Center of the Arts in Charlottetown, and it hosts so many talented Indigenous and Mi'kmaq artisans. And it's so important to shop local. Um, I can't stress that enough. You know, um, it's easy to support um, big box stores, but it's so important to support local businesses, local artists as much as you can. So that I encourage everyone to attend the Mi'kmaq Artisan Market. I believe it's from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturday, November 27th. Awesome. Saturday, November 27th at 11 a.m. It's the place to be in Charlottetown at the Confed Center. Um, thank you both so much again for, for joining us today. This brings us the, to the end of our episode. Um, thank you so much. You know, I know it's a beautiful Saturday, so uh, if you, I would much rather be in a dandelion field right now, but uh, <laughs> I'm so glad both of you could join us on Zoom. Thank you, Sweta. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you so Janine, much. for inviting me to be this to part of this too. <laughs> I think it was just perfect. Thank you so much to Julie and Janine for sharing your time and knowledge with us and our listeners. Gaspazy is our opening and closing music from the talented Mr. Shane Pendergast. He just wrapped up a maritime tour and will have some shows coming up in the near future, so keep a lookout. It's getting cold out there, so stay warm, stay safe, everyone. This has been Dialogue. <laughs>